there's no time in history that this growth rate in the price of housing has been sustainable. So what we're saying is have some patience. If you if you can have some patience, you can likely get some good deals later on down the road. Yeah, but how many people are actually doctors? Well, you don't need to be a doctor to have patience. Uh, you, you can have patience if you're a vet, vet as well. You, you just have to pause a little, have pause. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, the puns are bad. Yeah, that's right. You're listening to the personal wealth coach. You can tell because the puns are bad. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and... Jeff. McClure, the balding duo. We, we come to bring you news of prosperity and debt. We bring you news of a, a good monetary policy and bad. Uh, we have another question out there from Roger. It's a follow-up question on the grid. Uh, he says, guys, regarding the grid, didn't you guys propose a solution on the show of a 2 to $3 surcharge for each bill to fund winteriz- winterization? Was that proposed to the legislation or to the legislature? Uh, we didn't propose it to them, if that's what you're asking. Uh, but it was proposed. Warren Buffett uh, that's one of the things is that basically he was going to start up between seven and 11 power plants across the state that uh, would have been funded. The whole building of these things would have been funded with a surcharge across the state on all electricity bills of 2 to $3 a month. And that would have funded these things into operation, even though they wouldn't have been operating unless the whole grid got ready to fail. So- but we may we may see we'll see this summer. But based on the forecast, the climate climatological forecast, we could see rolling brownouts again this summer. Yeah. So this really comes back to there is a methodology already on the books. It's not been used well, and it, and when it was used, it was more like a, a sledgehammer than a scalpel. Um. And that is that the price in an emergency gets set by a not political board, supposedly not political board. It's supposed to be set to encourage more power generation at times of more need. So it's just kind of go across the board. If you think it's more expensive in the middle of summer, in the middle of the day to produce power. Let me kind of take a step back because we're, we're talking about this at a very macro level. We're looking at it at the whole state. The, the concepts here are the more power that's being drawn, the more demand there is for the power, which causes the price to go up for that power. And as long as that's being borne by the companies that are demanding the power for their customers, uh, if that price shift is changing there, you get a really good auction market set up where they are at, they're saying, I'm willing to pay this, and they're bidding the market up and down in a way that makes sense. When you have a big event like an ice apocalypse or summer that occurs, 
Summer is a lot more predictable. For some reason, summer is predictable. Every year we tend to have it. Um, we still are looking ahead and seeing we're likely to have rolling brownouts this summer. Why is that something that should occur in Texas? The answer is lots of fold. The, the reason why the companies in Texas are in Texas is because it's profitable. And the way that those profits are shown to the shareholders is on a quarterly basis. And then they normalize those, those quarters in some cases where they say, hey, let's look at it across the, what's the average across the whole thing, not taking into account winter or summer. Because that's what we do on unemployment. It's what we do kind of across the board. It's a really bad idea to make your decisions on heating oil, your decisions on power manufacturing based on normalized data. This is, this is something that is absolutely true. It's been true for as long as we've been using heating oil. Heating oil is cheaper in the summer than it is in the winter. I know. That's shocking, isn't it? Just grab your seat there. It is cheaper to buy heating oil in the summer than it is to buy heating oil in the winter. This is not a secret. Anybody can look this up. A lot of people have made a lot of money on this knowledge. Taking a little bit of forethought and saying summer is coming. It's like Game of Thrones. Summer is coming. In Texas, it's as important as the winter and Game of Thrones. You, you got to prepare and weatherization for cold and preparing for high generation, high demand in the heat is two big demands to, to put on a company that are reporting their earnings per quarter and they might lose their executives if, if their earnings go down in a quarter. So what I'm calling for here is something that's a little bit strange and that is understanding from the shareholders to understand that sometimes longer-term investments are needed to maintain the kinds of, of earnings that you expect from these companies. If you don't do it, you're taking on a much greater risk. That is something that's very difficult to comprehend when you're just looking at the accounting numbers or the earnings numbers for a company. You have to look at what they're trying to accomplish and why they're trying to accomplish it. This is why we use professional money managers when we're making our recommendations to our clients is that they look at this stuff. If they're buying energy companies, they want to look at this very specific stuff. They're not just looking at what are the earnings? How much profit did you make? It's how did you make that earning? How did you make that profit? What did it come from? And what are you doing to protect it? And how are you planning to make that continue? There's a balance that needs to be there between the public interest and the private interest. And I'm not against private enterprise. Matter of fact, I think private enterprise should dominate. But there are certain circumstances when the major circumstances when the government needs to step in and make companies, major corporations do some things. For example, the National Tra Traffic, the National Highway Traffic Safety Act changed the way automobiles were built. Uh, it came as a partial result of uh, the book Unsafe at Any Speed. I don't know, many of us older folks can remember when automobiles had rigid drive shaft, rivet steering shafts that were pointed at your chest. So if you hit something with the front of the vehicle, that steering shaft would simply go through your chest. We had uh, vehicles that were not designed to crash at all. And there's a very good reason for that. If you ever saw Fight Club, it, it had a pretty good 
understanding. If you ever drove up behind a Ford Pinto when they were putting on the brakes, you understood it too. The gas, when they hit when in the Ford Pinto, when the driver hit the brakes, the nose would go down, the tail would come up, and you'd be looking at the gas tank. So if you rear-ended that Pinto, you would hit the gas tank of the Pinto. Well, that what, what could this, be wrong with that? The whole idea was Ford literally did an analysis that came out in court cases. Yeah. They, they did this Ford, uh, crash they, analysis in, that they came out that was found during discovery. They, they actually found that it was cheaper to pay people, families of people off who've been doused with gasoline from a Pinto and killed than it was to build the Pintos where the gas tank was more in a more safe position. We're used to the fact that cars have safety devices built into them now, airbags and seat belts and things of that nature. And it has saved many, 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 many lives. And it actually is very, very good for the economy, not to mention the people who are riding in the cars. But the automobile companies had demonstrated very clearly that in a free, truly free enterprise situation, they were not going to build the safety devices into the cars. They simply weren't going to do it. And, and here's another example. Lead paint. Uh, lead paint in toys. How's that? Why do we not have lead paint in toys? Well, there's obviously lawsuits that have occurred where companies got sued because of lead paint. That's not why companies across the board have stopped doing it, uh, especially when you have imported toys. We have quality controls for a reason, but the quality controls aren't just based on what the company, yep, this is a good quality toy, the company says as they try to sell it. Uh, we have government organizations that are designed to protect the safety of the public. Some degree of that is necessary if you want to have a free market. Because if, if you go to the marketplace to buy a toy and there's two toys there and they look identical and one is cheaper than the other, people do this when they go birthday shopping on Amazon. Two toys, look, this one's cheaper. I'm going to get this one. Free shipping on this one, I'll get that one. What if it's got lead in it? Well, it doesn't say it's got lead in it. Doesn't say anywhere on, nope, doesn't say anywhere on here. Warning, this has lead. The reason why we can shop with confidence is because we have government regulators that go out there and say, hey, we got to protect the people that are buying this. If you buy a house that has asbestos in it, you know, that little check mark that you say, hey, I'm taking it as is, most of the time that check mark is not there because they expect you to know there's no asbestos in the house. It's some way of disclosing that's important. This goes across the board, across all free markets. Some degree of regulation is necessary to make sure that the marketplace is comparing the same product to the same product with the same safety standards. And we have to, we have to exercise that through laws. It, the reason that those regulators are there, the reason we don't have lead in, in the paint and toys in the United States or in the paint that's in the walls of your house anymore, is because legislation was passed or in the gasoline the federal for that matter to cause that to go away. And yeah, lead in the gasoline, that was fully well known, very well scientifically established. And the companies that were producing the lead in the gasoline knew that there was just a very inexpensive additive they could put in there to make it run smoother. Yeah, this is kind of fun. Uh, they could lose cheaper, they use cheaper gasoline, put lead in it, and it would run smoother in your car. Yeah, I mean, and then it, they could charge a higher price for it. Lead is a lubricant. It's kind of like graphite. You can rub it on something, and and it causes two uh, rigid items to slide against each other with less resistance. 
So when you put it in your engine, it's actually really good for the engine to have lead in the gasoline. It's just not good for any of the kids that are breathing the air nearby. So from a the adults. or the adults for that matter. Yeah. So this is the thing is that some degree of regulation has to occur in a free market or it's not a free market. It is some form of anarchy. Um, when I say some degree of regulation, if you go to Walmart and they don't regulate how many people go in the store or what's on the shelves, you get a mess. If, if you just get a slam full of people with with any product that they want to put on the shelves is on the shelves, you know, regardless of their own reputation or whatever, there are places, if you've ever traveled anywhere else in the world that is not a first world nation, you see it, that, that marketplaces, free market enterprise means you get away with as much as you can get away with. And if you plan to keep your customers, then you intend to keep them happy. That is the vast majority of free market. But there's always the outliers that are going for fast money, try to get it as quick as you can. And we all know people like that. It's not like this is, a, this is not me revealing that suddenly there's a secret that we didn't know about human nature. Human nature is that we sometimes cut corners and some degree of regulation is required to protect people from corners being cut. So in a perfect world, our free market in the power grid will fix itself. But as far as I know, there is no perfect world. It'd be nice if there was a perfect world. Uh, and there are going to be companies in this marketplace that do fix themselves. They're already, it's already happening. But by that very nature of what's happening, they're going to be more expensive for a while due to the extra investment that they're putting into weatherization, that they're putting into redundancy. This is going to be true in a lot of areas. And this allows the, their competitors to raise their rates, but just not as far, and make a, a larger profit margin for a while until the next icepocalypse. I read an interesting article in the Houston Chronicle. Uh, it may or may not be true, but it was an article that I did analysis on Texas power grid and the companies producing power. And it indicated that they had the highest profit margins in the United States and that they reduced their profit margins by 10%. They could afford to winterize. So it wouldn't necessarily produce higher prices for people. It would produce lower profit margins for the companies and for their investors. That's and it, the issue. This is the, this is the key where we were where I was saying earlier, I'm calling on shareholders to change their perspective and understand that long-term investment is going to be a lot better for the company and a lot better for the customers. Right now, if you're in Texas, it's likely that you have changed your power provider three or four times in the last 10 years. That doesn't sound like a great deal of loyalty doesn't sound like we are saying, well, this is the company that I enjoy. I, they, they've provided me the best tasting electricity I've ever had because electricity tastes the same. I'm not advocating that you should taste your electricity, just as a side note. I mean, if you've got a 9-volt battery, you could try that. But please keep your tongue away from the outlet. Uh, 
The idea here is that electricity is electricity, and there is a common standard. There is regulation in this market that says that it's got to be a certain voltage at a certain frequency at a certain resistance level. There, there, there is a, a lot that's regulated in our market. It's not like this is a free market. If you plug in your computer and it doesn't blow up, that's proof that the market is regulated. Uh, some of that's done at the local level. Some of that's done at the state level. Some of that's done at the national level. Uh, we have a standard that was not voluntarily agreed upon by all the electric power manufacturing companies. They were told, this is the standard you will meet. So that this is the key, is that there's no such thing as a true free market if you want some degree of safety and reliability. Our debate here shouldn't be about free market versus government mandates. The debate should be always what's safe and what allows companies to maintain profitability without overreach by the government? What is overreach? Well, when the government says you can't make power at all because um, you're not the cousin of the senator, well, that's definitely overreach. And that happens in a lot of places in the world. So when it comes down to who can set up a power company, that should just be up to the people who are able to set up power companies. How the power is transmitted needs to be regulated. You can't run a high-voltage power line across somebody's roof. That's against the law. Wow, it's been regulated. This is the point. Is that We're kind of beating this again and again, but it is vitally important that we understand that we're not debating that we should get rid of free enterprise here. That is not the debate. The debate is how do we maintain a free enterprise and the safety of the public so that the public can have trust in the free enterprise? I, Texas is a bastion of uh, entrepreneurialism. It's a bastion of new business growth, of small business, of private property rights. We can go on and on and on about this. We are energy independent. And the reason why the United States is energy independent at all, at all is because of Texas. And a lot of that comes because of smaller government. That is not the debate. We're not saying we should suddenly have government oversight of everything. What we are saying is that tweaking the law to make sure that people are safe. A lot of people died during the ice apocalypse. Even though we, we, we had mandated that, that power lines be given higher priority and so on, when you can't give them priority because you have no power, it doesn't matter. Uh, and the fact is that we shouldn't be sp spending trillions of dollars to prevent 200 people from dying. But doesn't that start to put a price tag on a human life? Trillions of dollars is too much. How do we do this? How do we approach it? How do we do that? I'm glad I'm not on the legislature, that's for sure. But we need to do something to clarify. To If, if the government is going to mandate something, then the government should pay for that mandate. Unfunded mandates are not good. Um, within reason. So the government is not paying for your airbag, but they mandate in a lot of cases that man that airbags exist. What do you think about the idea that in every other grid in the United States, the companies are required to maintain a 15% reserve, Texas or not? So as Texas 
for instance, this summer when it comes around, the odds are like last summer we'll have brownouts. Yeah, I, what I would like to see is something with some more flexibility than that, where you know we expect to see brownouts. Well, we would expect to say, hey, I want you to have enough reserve on hand for these high peak moments. Where, but that that requires again that over oversight. So it's kind of like what the Federal Reserve does with banks where the banks are saying, I want to loan out as much money as I can. And we've seen enough instances throughout history where the banks, given free will, given no oversight or mandates, they loan out a lot more money than they have on hand and then collapse and you don't have your money left. We've been through enough banking collapses throughout the centuries to say, hey, we got to stop banks from loaning out more money than they have if, if we want to protect the public. Again, it comes back to what is the job of government? The job of government is to prevent people from showing up and selling you someone else's car. Hey, buy this car. I had just got it, but he didn't. He's lying to you. Well, the government should stop that. That's fraud. Well, how about buy this car that's about to explode and maybe kill you, and I know it's going to happen. Well, we should prevent that too. That's the lemon laws. Those are things that make sense even to libertarians. Uh, otherwise, we, you just have anarchy. You have the ability for people to say, just give me your money. I'm not going to pay you anything or I'm not going to give you anything. Just give me your money so I don't shoot you. That, that has to be regulated out of existence as well. That's called robbery. We regulated it out of existence so hard that we give people orange jumpsuits when they do it. So regulations are important. Free enterprise is important. The electric grid needs both. And we've got, unless we have a special session in Texas or the legislature, which the governor would have to call, I don't see that happening. We are, we are having a special session coming up, but it will only be for redistricting. Yeah. Um, we could have, and that's the thing. In, in Texas, when the governor calls a special session, it must be given a very specific reason, which I don't want that changed at all. How many special sessions do we want? I think we should have a special session on the power grid, but I don't think Governor Abbott listens to us. Uh, I might be nice if he did, but um, that's that's up to him. What he does on his Saturday morning is totally up to him. All right, so we shall we change the subject? I think we beat that one up. All right. What's your what's your next top story? Well, I want to talk about some good news in the economy. Wait a minute. The- We're going to lose all our listeners if we talk about good news. Well, it's pretty important to understand. Scare them somehow. Despite the fact that household income dropped 13% last month in April compared with March and because the stimulus checks went away, consumer spending rose by half a percent. Now, that's half a percent. You run that out over a year. That's a 6% annual rise, which is, and our economy is principally driven by consumer spending. And the consumer spending also shifted so that the spending on stuff which is an economics term for goods. It never they never spend anything on bads. They only spend the money on goods. Um, dropped a little bit, and the the money that was spent on services, things like going out, getting your nails done, getting your haircut. I got, I actually got a haircut for the first time, a commercial haircut for the first time in fifteen months. So I'm participating in this too. Um, going out to eat, going to movies, things like that, jumped one point one percent. Now that's a big thing in our economy. But there's a bigger thing going on that I think is important to note. And that is that so far this year, we're seeing CapEx, capital expenditures by businesses, 
rise at a 15% annualized rate. Let me say that again, a 15% annualized rate. Now, what we saw- Can you, can you explain last, what CapEx is? I mean, I'll get to that. In, in a little capital, bit more- Capital expenditures by businesses when they buy equipment, computers, software, whatever they need to do to make their business more productive or to expand their business. It includes buildings. It includes anything they invest in that's long-term that is designed to produce more stuff at a lower cost. And a 15, what we see normally, capital expenditures tend to sag as the market goes up and tend to sag as the economy reaches full production. Because as we reach full production, business leaders look around and say, that's about as far as it's going to go. This thing is going to, we need to back off now because things will sag again. There's another recession coming at some point. Let's not buy any more stuff. And the opposite is occurring now. The market is very near a record high. The economy is going like gangbusters. And what we're seeing is a dramatic increase in capital expenditures by companies. A lot of that reason is because they can't find enough workers, but there's other reasons. They just It really boils down to the fact that there are more people who want to buy things than want to buy services, want to buy goods from them, than they have the ability to produce. And so they're expending money on buying that. Now, why is that good? We normally see it at, we normally see capital expenditures by businesses expand at the bottom of a recession. That indicates the recovery is at hand. It is the recovery. And the recovery is generated at least partially by those capital expenditures. And as those capital expenditures go up, businesses create more jobs in the companies that make the things they're buying. They create more financial transactions, they create more money, and they generally borrow money to do it. The growth in capital expenditures is probably the brightest thing I've seen in the economy going on right now. It's really impressive. That is awesome. Um, we, we have other good news on the economy, too, or at least less bad news. Uh, and the unemployment numbers came out for, for uh, the week last week. Uh, and this is one of those things. We've, we talked, we've talked about this before. Pre-pandemic a $200,000 layoff rate or $200,000, 200,000 people laid off in a week would have been staggeringly bad news. We would have looked at that and said, what is going on in the economy? Something major is wrong. Last week, how many did we see? Four, 444? 444,000? 406. 406,000. The week before that was 444,000. Yeah. Um, those pre-pandemic, we would have looked at those numbers and said, this is worse than we have seen since the worst part of the Great Recession. The, something horrible is going on. Change the perspective to today, and this is good news. Because for the most part of the beginning of this year, it wasn't below 700,000 a week layoffs across the United States. So the layoffs are dropping back. The country is opening back up. There's more vaccinations that have occurred. Uh, quite a number of states have already hit the 70% vaccination rate, which is pretty close to herd immunity. Uh, it doesn't mean that there won't be COVID outbreaks there. It just means that they won't affect the entire state anymore. So as we come up on that, as we get more and more vaccinated. And I'm not saying that the vaccination somehow getting the shot causes the economy to do better. People get more comfortable going out and going back to doing things. You were just talking about having your first commercial haircut in over a year. 
that's the point is that we're going back out there and this is the other point is that it's hard for corporations for small businesses to hire people right now because not everyone is vaccinated and the people that lost their jobs the the largest percentage of the people that lost their jobs were in the low income bracket the low income bracket is the slowest to get vaccinated and if companies are saying hey if you want to deal with the public at our restaurant if you want to be out there without a mask on you need to be vaccinated because there's a liability issue there. If you say, go on out there and you get COVID and then you sue your company saying, you knew I wasn't vaccinated and you said, don't wear a mask anyway. There's a liability thing there. So if, if we don't get everybody vaccinated, then they don't go back to work the same speed. There's, there's a lot of the supply chain that is all tied up in this. But kind of the under, under thing is that it's getting better. It is getting better at a very noticeable, uh, measurable rate. Uh, it's getting less worse, which in this case is better. Uh, and we expect that to continue. We expect that to continue because there's a lot of pent-up demand. There's a lot of, pe- a lot of people with a lot of money that they didn't have two years ago that are ready to come back into the economy. And we're seeing it happen. So th- that's more good news prices for houses are coming up really really fast which is not necessarily good news people are saying why would that not be good news my house price is up well it's very unlikely that you're selling your house right now that's part of the reason why the house prices are up it it might be nice if everybody were selling their house and their house prices were still going up but that's not the way the market works if everybody's selling their house right now then the house price would be going the other way not up so House prices going up, lumber prices going up. That's all symptoms of the same thing. We're coming back into industry. We're coming back into making financial decisions again. And we're all doing it at the same time. But we've all taken a long break, which means the capacity isn't there to meet the demand yet, which is going to cause inflation for the short term at least. You had something you wanted to to say? Yeah, the new house sales declined which is not too surprising, despite the fact that there's still about 9.1% of the people surveyed say they're looking at buying a new house. 9.1%, I'm sorry, we grew at 9.1% the number of people looking at buying a new house. The fact is that the reason the house price, houses, house sales have declined is there are fewer houses for sale, particularly new houses. And builders aren't building as many new houses for a very simple reason, even with a 13.5% growth over the last 12 months of the price of houses. When you look at the fact that it's been like a 70, what, what did I say, a piece of lumber went from five from $7 to $51. Cost of the lumber going into a house and the cost of the materials going to a house have risen so fast that even with a 13% rise in a new house, builders are having trouble figuring out how they're going to pay for the house. How they're going to price that house into the market based on what they build into the house and still have a good house. So we're going to have some trouble. We're going to have some bumps and some... Matter of fact, I heard, I read it. It was it was described as the bottle as the ketchup bottle situation. When you're trying to pour ketchup out of a bottle and it won't come out, and you start shaking it, at some point the ketchup's going to come out in a rush, and the prices will go down. But that may not be for a year or two because it takes a while to spin up and build up the capacity for to produce more supply. Right, and when when we're seeing fewer houses getting built because of lumber prices, there's a backlog at the lumber mills. 
There's a lot of logs waiting to be cut, and the capacity is not there to cut the logs fast enough to make the lumber. Then the lumber has to be baked. So there is this, there's this lag between when it gets to the mill to when it gets to a store. Now, there's really a lag when you plant the seed. That, that lag goes for sometimes 100 years. So if you think about supply chains and you say lumber is one of those supply chains, it doesn't do well with slack and give. It doesn't do well at all. These supply chains go back 100 years. You didn't, 100 years ago, somebody didn't say, let's plant some extra after, so that uh, during the pandemic of 2021, that uh, we'll have enough lumber on. That's not how it worked. So, and, and people didn't say 15 years ago, let's make three more lumber mills here so that we have enough capacity later on down the road. I know we have plenty now, but let's, let's go ahead and have some extra hanging around. We're talking about the same thing there as on the power grid. The difference is on the power grid, you, can, you don't have a choice as to whether you need power or not when the weather turns hot or cold. Right. You do have a choice as to whether you buy a new house. Right. And this is hard because house buying is a is a decision that's made more based on what your discomfort level is or comfort level is right now but if you can afford to wait it's probably a good idea to wait to buy a house right now house prices uh, at this level don't make a lot of sense and if you can wait a few years the house market is going to look more reasonable Uh, it cannot continue at this rate of growth. It simply cannot. There, there's no time in history that this growth rate in the price of housing has been sustainable. So what we're saying is have some patience. If you if you can have some patience, you can likely get some good deals later on down the road. Yeah, but how many people are actually doctors? Well, you don't need to be a doctor to have patience. Right? You, you can have patience if you're a vet, vet as well. You, you just have to pause a little have pause (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry the puns are bad that's right you're listening to the personal wealth coach you can tell because the puns are bad um this is the personal wealth coach if you'd like to join the conversation i don't know that we've given out the email addresses this hour you can talk to us uh, and this is a good time to do it last uh 15 minutes or so of the program if you would like to join the conversation, our email addresses in here are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com, preferably both. And that's the personal wealth coach. Uh, and we'll be back on the other side of these very important announcements. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. We are the bald duo. We are here to talk finance, economics, um, not sports. Very definitely not sports. Well, we have about 15 minutes left for this week's program. Do you have something specific you would like to talk about? Well, just the same old thing. There's some negative indicators in the economy, but they really aren't negative indicators. Mentioned this in the newsletter, but uh, new home sales down 5.9%. I mentioned that. And again, it's a matter of supply and demand. People want to buy new homes. That's why the prices are going up as the supply is reducing because it's hard to find the materials and they're very expensive materials to build the houses. 
the number of, un, you mentioned the number of unemployed dropped back from 444 to 406,000 newly unemployed. That's a good sign that indicates things. As a matter of fact, I, I expect when the uh, Labor Department reports the unemployment rate, it will have dropped from the last time, which is good news for the United States economy. Interesting little factoid. There was a survey done of online job-seeking clicks in the states that killed, that canceled, when they announced the cancellation of the extra $300 federal unemployment benefit. The clicks went up for about eight days, and then they went away. So there's not more people looking for jobs. It, apparently, so far, the reduction in unemployment benefits has not improved the employment situation in those states. It'd be interesting to watch how this works out, but I think that uh, there's something else out there. And matter of fact, I would love it if we had some readers or not readers, listeners who could let us know what they think the cause of the unemployment issue is. We have a lot of people unemployed. We have a lot of open jobs. People not willing to work in the open jobs. And the initial reaction is to say it's the unemployment benefits, but only about 15% of the people who are unemployed are getting those unemployment benefits. And when we've seen in the states that cut them early, that when the, un- the extra unemployment benefit is cut, we don't see a surge in people taking the new, taking the new low-pay jobs. Um, could be this the economy has changed fundamentally. It could be people are afraid of getting COVID. I don't know what the reason is, but there's a reason that people are list- listing themselves when they when they get a telephone call. I'm looking for work, but I can't find work. I can't find suitable work. And yet, the jobs are open. There's jobs open all over the place. There's signs everywhere now hiring, but we can't get people to work there. I mean, that's a, that's quite a mystery, and there's no easy answer to it. It'd be nice to find one. If somebody's got some ideas, they'd like to email us at either Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. And, and let us know what you think. Uh, we think that the answer is the same as what we were just talking about with the power grid, with lumber, and with everything else, is that the demand and the supply aren't staying consistent enough so that some of these people that are unemployed, this is a number that's really hard to track, but anecdotally, and with some, we'll know more about this in like 10 years, we'll be able to tell you exactly what's going on. But anecdotally, what I'm hearing is it's people go back to work and then get laid off and then go back to work and then get laid off because they're in industries that are most affected by the pandemic. The people that have been uh, that that have been laid off have likely been laid off more than one time during the pandemic, and that's those are weird numbers. Those are not numbers that we normally see. Uh, we talked about this last week. We also talked about this last year when we were looking at at the uh, the trucking issue when when trucks were you know we were shipping stuff around, and then we have the shutdown for the for the pandemic. What we saw in this leading up to this is we saw truckers getting laid off one month and then not having enough trucks and the scramble to hire truckers and then the following month not enough to ship around and so they get laid back off again. That is something that that I suspect is happening everywhere in the economy where unemployment exists. It, it, it's unlikely that companies are laying people off for the first first time in the pandemic in May of 2021. That is that is a is a pretty safe statement. What would you say to that? I think 
one of the problems that we have is it used to be the, it was something called the HPUA where they didn't do layoffs. It used to be companies would hang on to people even if it wasn't profitable, waiting for the downturn to pass by. But I think there's a readiness right now, particularly if they have a bunch of high-yield investors that actually own the debt of the company, to maximize profitability and to lay people off instantly. At the first sign of a downturn, they lay people off thinking that people will be easy to find. I think they're getting healed. I think employers are getting healed of that uh, misapprehension. Yeah. Right, because it's really hard to hire people back now once you've laid them off because everybody's problem. hiring at the same time. There's another problem in the high-end areas where they can't find waiters and they can't find people to do low in tasks. Uh, the, the relatively high-income areas like the Hamptons and in the, several places in Florida, places in California, there's no place for low-wage workers to live. We were talking about the practice of houses going up so much and price of apartments, apartment prices have gone up also. Rents have gone up. And if there's no place that a person can live and can live and make for $15 an hour, then they're not going to work. They're not going to move there and work for $15 an hour. I'll, I'll give you a specific on this. This is something that is true across the entire big tech world. The, the big tech world will we'll get really specific and say in San Francisco, uh, these big tech campuses where these companies are, are, have software folks there and they're highly paid, highly motivated people. Part of the reason why they're highly motivated is they've got catering that's taking place on site. They've got, uh, sometimes they've got masseuses and personal trainers. There's a gym, all of that's going on. With people working remotely, all of those people got laid off. The caterers, you don't cater when somebody's working remotely. Okay, so, well, tech is coming back. They say, everybody come back now. So tech comes back and they say, all right, caterers, come on out here. Health, your daycare workers at the campus, come on back out. Except, and this is very true for Google, uh, but also for a lot of the other tech folks, they had like a bus system that was designed just for them that would go way outside of San Francisco and would pick up these low-wage people, low-wage compared to the you know $400,000 tech employee salary, to come and take care of the kids on site, except the buses aren't running right now. And people are coming back on site, and these caterers and the, the child care workers are told, if you don't come in, you don't have a job. And they say, well, we can't afford to come in. We can't, we can't park there. If we park, it's going to be more than our wages to park our car. This is a literal thing. This is not hyperbole here. It's more than they get paid to park their car. And that doesn't make sense. So they're not coming back. And Google's saying, hey, help wanted. <laughs> they're not going to fill that job until they get the bus system running again. So it's that. Or until they get the pay up to the point where the people can afford to pay to park their car. Exactly. And, and that's, that's one of the difficult things is that you can't really afford to pay somebody $100,000 a year to be a childcare employee. But if you want childcare employee to be on site, then you need to pay them for it. And you need to pay them more than the expense of showing up. Uh, it looks like we've got one more question here. Aha! Uh, we, we have a, Stephen says that he's retiring after teleworking for a year. 
And we're seeing that as well. This is another factor is that the retirement rate is going up significantly. We Social Security came out this year with with last year's data on people retiring, taking their their early retirement all the way up through. And the early retirement numbers are the ones that we saw a big spike in early retirement. That tends to be a pretty permanent decision. People don't like to start losing their Social Security by going back to work. It's really weird. Even when they get a higher paying job, they would they would rather not go back to work and lose some of their Social Security. So that's a piece of this as well, is that the retirement rate is up. So we've got lots and lots of factors that we think are parts of the answer. And uh, Stephen, thanks for, for sending that in. That's a, that's a big piece of the puzzle there. People are are saying, all right, I've been teleworking for a year. I've just completely changed the way I've done business and I've been doing business my entire career. I did a year of teleworking. All right, now I'm done. Ready ready for that to be over. I'm ready to go on with working for myself for the rest of my life. Congratulations, Stephen, by the way. That is fantastic. Retirement is something that they used to have parties for and gold watches and all that stuff. But I think it's it's a party for the rest of your life, hopefully. Congratulations on getting to the, the American dream, financial independence. That is, it's not simple to do. It took a lot of effort. Um, and we have about five minutes left. Do you have a wrap-up on what how people should be thinking and what they should be doing? Well, I think there's a lot of bumps coming. We've seen some bumps, but there's a lot of bumps coming, and there's a lot of fear in the market, which is a good thing. Uh, the markets have kind of leveled off in the last month. 0.55%. Now, 0.55% is still like 7% for on an annualized basis. But the markets are going to digest what they've got for a while. But the good news is earnings from various companies within the S&P 500 are coming in, and they're almost all breaking records, or almost all above estimates, which is an indication that the S&P 500 is fairly priced at this point. If the earnings continue to rise, if the profits of the companies continue to rise, revenues continue to rise. Everything is going to move along very nicely. The problems that we're running into right now are mostly logistics. Um, there's there's just a lot of problems around the world. And, and very frankly, we're not going to fully recover in the United States until the rest of the world gets over coronavirus. You know, we talked about the fact that copper is up tremendously, which affects the price of cars. It affects a lot of things. The fact that chips are are our issue are an issue there's a shortage of chips by the way we talk about the the need to put more power plants in and have more reserve power in texas it's not just a matter of inconvenience and 200 people getting killed part of the reason that there's a chip shortage and it's still in effect is a major chip plant in austin shut down because of the lack of power during the during snowmageddon and we're still not fully recovered from that We've got a ways to go in this recovery but we're bumping along in the right direction but this is the important thing. There's going to be bumps, and don't get too concerned about it. The underlying economy seems to be incredibly healthy, doing very, very well. All the indicators that we see indicate things are going to get better. But that doesn't mean there won't be little scary events that come along. I think inflation is there. It's temporary. It has to do with logistics bottlenecks primarily. And eventually that will solve itself too. It'll, it may take a couple of years for all this stuff to work out. We've had a sudden stop and a sudden start to the economy, but it's very, very different from very, very different from the one that happened in 2007 through nine. 
when the economy, when the banking system crashed and there was a shortage of money in the economy, a terrible shortage of money in the economy. We've got an excess of money, if anything, right now. And that money is going to be spent. It's going to produce some pressures. But right now, even though worrying is a good thing in the market, um, there's not a lot to worry about. Yeah. Uh, what we have seen, you were talking about CapEx, but we've seen a lot of reinvestment into retooling, retraining, rebuilding during this shutdown. So we have a greater capacity to grow than we had pre-pandemic. Uh, and we have a lot more reason to grow, more capacity and more demand. People have taken more time off. They've got more money in the bank because all the vacations they didn't take, all of that, all of the cars they didn't buy, all of that. This is leading to the higher prices, but it's also leading to other areas having more capacity, building, you know, the places that have less capacity, construction on new houses and so on, are the things that are rising in price the most. Uh, we're about out of time for this week. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you all for listening. Presuming you did. If you didn't listen, then no thanks to you. Huh. But everybody else, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we do investment management, portfolio management, and design fiduciary advice for people of high net worth. Off the air, obviously. Uh, local number is... 254-947-1111. You can reach that toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can contact us through there or through email at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. On our website, you can sign up for our newsletter, read our newsletter, Listen to recordings going back lots of years. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.